Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 347. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and you can get the Jazz Session widget by going to allaboutjazz.com and typing Jazz Session widget into the search bar. That's a little thing you can put on your website that will show the latest episode of this show. And if you do it, let me know because I will mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. To get that newsletter, you can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, or the best way is to subscribe to the mailing list. You can do that by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on Mailing List. This show is member-supported. That means people like you, people who listen to the show and then choose to kick in a little bit of money, are the ones who very literally keep me alive, and that is what keeps the show going. So if you can see your way to doing that, it's much appreciated. Just visit thejazzsession.com slash join. My guest today is a drummer named Aaron Stabell. He is from Rochester, New York, and I lived there for quite a number of years running a jazz station. Aaron's got an album called Bending and Breaking. We'll hear music from that and then my conversation with drummer Aaron Stabell. My guest is the drummer and composer Aaron Stabell. His new CD is Bending and Breaking, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason. I want to start I think this might set the tone a little bit for people. I was going through your blog entries, and uh, you had a like a best of the past year, which had you know a lot of the things you would expect, cool performances and the album coming out and all that stuff. And one of them, I think my favorite one, was that you got sent home from a show because you had a mohawk. And oh I yeah! Desperately want to know yes, the well, story, and I think it might my, set the table for this album. One of the best of of the year, absolutely. Um, it was at a gig at this fancy uh, social club in Rochester, 
And I showed up and it was this group I played with tons of times. And I walked in and everybody kind of was looking at me a little bit. And I, I looked great other than my mohawk. You know, I had like a nice tie on and all that. And I kind of got a weird feeling as all these people were kind of staring at me. And I set up the drums, everything was fine. And then the band leader came over and he was like, hey, you know, uh, that you can't be here. You can't look like that here, they said. And he's, he's like, I love you so much. And, I, you know, it's nothing from me. It's not coming from me. But they said, like, you know, is there anything you do? Can you, can you like, comb it down? Or, and I said, yeah. And I lived five minutes away. So I got in the car and went home and, and like, prepared the most brutal-looking comb-over in history <laughs> because my hair is really long on the top. So it, it combed almost down to my ear. But then the other side was completely bare. It just, I mean, I think personally it looked 10 times worse, but apparently <laughs> they were happy with it. Um, my so, guess is the incidence of comb overs in a social club is much higher than probably. the incidence of Mohawks. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, and I was resentful the rest of the night sitting there angry and comparing and saying, like, how many people do I still look better than? And it was, you know, I thought it was almost <laughs> everyone, frankly. Maybe that's me, but, uh, it wasn't, it was just funny. You know, I didn't feel bad. I just felt like, you know, Social classes is must have, it must have been what it was. Right. Well, I I mean, it's, it's a silly question to open with, but, um, I think in some way it, it will help people understand a little bit that you are as much a part of, uh, the kind of rock and pop of our times as you are of the jazz of our times. And I think this album really shows that, that it's, it's as influenced by music's outside the jazz world as it is by music's inside of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know there's the, the debate going on lately with the, uh, should we call it jazz or should we call it something else? And I think it's, I don't know that it's even worth having that debate because we're in a different kind of music altogether. I think at least what I'm doing, I'm not, I never sat down and thought about what was I going to call it before I wrote any tunes. You know, I just used all the stuff that <clears throat> had influenced me in my life and stuff that I liked. And I guess my number one goal is I want to make music that if I was listening to it, I would think it sounded good. And if somebody else that shared my similar interests listened to it, they would think it sounded good. And whether that meant that it involved, uh, you know, heavy metal groove for half a minute or whether it was something really beautiful and quiet, um, I tried I guess it sounds like a cliche kind of, but I don't want to have the box, you know. I want to just allow anything, and uh, if it comes out sounding like jazz, then that's great. But um, there's improvisation, uh, but I'm not black, so I don't know, you know, how that all fits together. But, yeah, I don't want to have any boundaries if I can possibly avoid them. Is that something that you approach in the writing or in the performing or in both? How do you, how do you arrive at that state? I think both because, um, you know, I went to school for jazz drum set at Eastman and there was a lot that I liked about that, but there was a lot that I found frustrated by playing inside this jazz box. Um, and we ran across just countless examples of times where what I was doing wasn't working for the situation because it wasn't jazz enough, you know, finger quotes. And I think in the writing, a lot of times, I'm just bringing in whatever I like influence wise. So maybe I'll get started by, okay, here's like a little chord progression that I think sounds good that totally isn't based on any kind of jazz theory or, you know, two, five, one turnaround or anything. It's just, I think this sounds good. And maybe I lifted it off of a pop record or some other weird influence or whatever. So I think it's both. And I think that, you know, the playing, I just try to play to what I wrote. I'm not thinking about like a drum beat beforehand or anything like that. They're very separate for me. So it's almost as if 
I treat my music the same way I treat someone else's music. Just what can I do on this tune that'll work? So I think it's both. And a lot of these tunes really have that, uh, kind of that morphing quality that I always found really attractive, like about Mingus's music, for example, where Mm -hmm. it might start as one thing and it ends, it doesn't even sound like the same piece anymore. And a lot of your tunes seem to have that same thing where just almost out of nowhere, it feels right when you listen to it. But if you were just to sit down and say, okay, this next section should suddenly be this, it's out of left field completely. It seems like a kind of fun way to write. Yeah. I mean, I try to think in terms of overall flow for sure. Um, and like you said, it doesn't always end up where it started, but I like the idea of kind of a collage when I'm writing. And if I think about like this section will work well with this section. Um, and then maybe all I need to do is find some type of transitional material. Um, I try to be thoughtful in the, in the way that I connect stuff, but maybe the connection's not super obvious. Like maybe I'm just using some of the same notes or, um, sometimes it's stuff that only we would recognize if I sat down and pointed it out, you know, like you're saying, um, they don't necessarily pick it up by ear, but to me, it still provides some sense of continuity and maybe it's just not a uh, sonic continuity, but it's there. So in terms of somebody improvising, uh, there's something that they can lock onto from section A to section B. Um, and sometimes it's just, it's inspired by the same things like, uh, April 4th, Boston is one of the tunes on the record. to Boston to visit my friend Brian and the different sections of the tune are very contrasting and there are this just three or four different ideas that I kind of thought of while I was on that trip you know stuff that he's a he's in a rock band um, stuff that made me think of this song could be something that his band would play that's one of the tunes and then another one is like oh this is kind of how I would feel you know this is like the soundtrack to this moment walking to this party and they all connect but they're all connected under that umbrella of the topic of the tune or the subject you know so um it makes sense to me and i guess the final ingredient is trusting my gut enough that i'm going to hopefully put together something that even if it doesn't make total sense it still sounds like you said there's some continuity that something that you can connect and it just becomes a tune yeah they almost sound like mini suites in a way i mean a a whole suite's worth of music in you know five or six or seven minutes yeah and i guess you know that could be something that somebody could use as a criticism as well um but to me it's cool because i like that in art i like that in fashion i like that in music you know stuff that just kind of gets rammed together um, like I like Ives' music a lot because Ives will just take two things that seem like they're definitely not going to work and you just ram them together and sure enough it works, you know? I really I really like that idea. Or um, in the art world, you know, sometimes if there's something juxtaposed, two things next to each other, 
They don't look like they would make sense if you said I'm going to put these things together, but they still make it somehow. Um, and sometimes that comparison is the beautiful part. You know, you can see the differences and you can see the similarities. Seems like it rewards repeated listening too. I hope so. I mean, it's uh, they're they're usually tunes that get reworked a couple times here and there, but my goal is usually that if I can uh, get it all down in one not one sitting necessarily, but when I start and I'm like, today's the day this tune is going to be done, I want to just get it all out there. And uh, But yeah, I think you catch stuff, I mean, hopefully. I think any artist would say, like, yeah, if you keep checking out something, you can pick up more. I think that's a sign of uh, careful composition and you know, careful presentation and thoughtful presentation. Um, so I hope that's true. When did you start getting serious about writing? Um, I feel like in Miss Leone's math class in 11th grade, I did a lot of writing, but I didn't do a lot of math. And so <laughs> I started to realize... Sorry, Miss Leone. Yeah, she, I'm sure she's ha just as happy to have me out of that class as I was happy to be out of it. Um, and I'm sure she never thought she would make it onto an interview like this either. Um, but I, I always liked writing. You know, I liked writing stuff in high school. I took theory class, you know, I, I did all that stuff, but all, as soon as I got to Eastman for my undergrad, I felt this like very, very strong fear of presenting any work that I'd written because number one, I felt like there were tons of people way smarter than me there. And number two, I didn't really have a lot of the kind of training that other people had had in terms of, you know, learning how to write for a big band or learning how to, um, even anything. I remember some of my first classes at Eastman learning about different chords and I was like, you know, furiously taking notes and everybody else was just like, yep, we know all this stuff already. And I remember just feeling like this is quite an uphill climb. Um, but I always did what I talked about before, which is just try to write something that I think sounds good. And so I, I never really wrote any tunes that we played during uh, my first four years at Eastman. I was always really afraid to do that because I was deathly afraid of somebody saying that they were bad. 
you know, and it's like my first try. So I would probably have been frustrated and never done it again. So you just had this, some book of music that you were writing that was in a desk yeah, drawer was, somewhere? Right, yeah. I, I was working on stuff at home, and I would play it on the piano a lot. But I And maybe I would show somebody, you know, but it wasn't something that I wanted to present. So I did my senior recital, and then I had, like, two more months to go. And I was like, you know, Aaron, you got to do something here. So I started to work on uh, this song cycle project that was called Visit. And we performed it on the last day of school. So I figured even if everyone hated it, I'm out of here after that. <laughs> and that's fine. So even if it's the worst, then I figured it would still, there would be less that I would have to face afterwards. Um, and I don't know, maybe it just took me that long to, uh, to get there. But really the, the real inspiration for doing it was that John Hollenbeck came to Eastman the day before my senior recital was his featured day with a jazz ensemble that I played with. So I remember him saying somewhere along the line, whether it was just to me or in a class, like, you know, if you're not going out and playing your music, then it's not really doing anything. It's like if a tree falls in the forest, but nobody's around to hear it, you know? And so he was really positive and really encouraging. And he said something like, you know, if you've got music, you should try it out. Cause the worst thing that could happen is, it could suck, and then everything after that hopefully will be better. So I did that, and we performed this uh, set of 12 pieces, and it was for two different groups kind of alternating back and forth, and it came off great. It was wonderful, like better than I could have ever expected, and that gave me the courage to say, like, okay, I think I can do this. I think if I have this uh, voice to share with people that it, it won't be a total failure, and uh that was kind of where I first, my first, like, I guess, debut moment or whatever you mm. want to call it. Um, but I remembered being, having that be really encouraging. And, uh, from there, I started to write more and started to put together a band and started to end up where we're at now, I guess. Can you tell me more about that song cycle? What it was like? Sure. Um, it was your typical, like, uh, about a breakup sort of, uh, song cycle, but I tried to make it not super depressing because the story was that I had this girlfriend. Uh, when I started college, who uh, went to school in Boston to Emerson College. And I just picked different kind of events, things that happened, you know. So there were three tunes called South Station, where I would like arrive at South Station. And then right in the middle, it was a similar tune called Transfer. And then Departure was just like Arrival, but a different harmony, you know, kind of mm -hmm. a sadder, more uh, emotional sort of thing. Um, and so there were two, it was one group was for Piano Trio. Uh, which represented me, essentially. So music being played by the piano trio was representing me. And then music played by the, the band, which was uh, saxophone, bass, clarinet, electric guitar, electric bass, and drums, was supposed to represent the two of us or something that involved both parties in the relationship. Um, and so the common musician is me. I play in all the groups or both groups, I guess, all the tunes. And so they kind of went back and forth, and the trio tunes were very uh, kind of light, kind of introspective, and the quintet tunes were a lot more aggressive, a lot more kind of rock-oriented. And um, <clears throat> by the end of it, it's supposed to take you through the cycle of, you know, I'm this idealistic, happy boy in a great relationship to uh, one of the tunes where it turns really dark, you know, it's like the end right. of, the, end of the, the honeymoon or whatever. And then... Uh, I end up sort of like I started, but uh, a little sadder, I guess, if, that's, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But it's not supposed to be like a whiny emo sort of thing. Um, it's just, you know, trying to relay that experience as best I could. 
Um, and it was a lot of fun to put together and I still want to do it again sometime, but I feel like the further I get from that moment, the less relevant it gets because now I'm married and extremely happy in that situation. Um, but I, you know, I still think it's got value musically. It's just, uh, it's harder to tell the story because I'm not, I'm not a little kid anymore. You know? Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting because much like the music on bending and breaking, which isn't necessarily connected thematically in that way, but it, a lot of it seems to have an underpinning in your real life. Not just like, this is the music I listen to and so it surfaces here, but right. actually these are experiences I've had and stories I want to tell even without words. I'm going to try to express them musically. And it sounds like the song cycle is maybe even a more explicit iteration of that. Totally. But that feels to me like the, something that's kind of at the root of how you compose is taking actual things from your life yeah. and trying to express them. Yeah, it's so important uh, to me because I feel like it's got to, it's got to say something. It can't, you know, I don't really, I mean, there's great music out there that's just music for music's sake. Um, but I remember being in a uh, master class at Easton once with this great composer, Tom Davis. And he said, he's, he had all these songs that were about stuff. You know, he wrote a suite about flowers for Algernon and he wrote stuff. All of them had really, uh, sophisticated backstories. <clears throat> and one of the students that was a composition student said, you know, raised your hand and said, like, do you think that songs always have to be about something or couldn't I just write a song that was good? And he said, if it's not about something, then what's really the point? You know, and while I can see what, how that might not always be true, I really believe that. I think that it's really hard to buy something if it's <clears throat> just supposed to be like music, you know, like, okay, but there's so much of that out there, you know, and a lot of it is by really great people like Beethoven, you know, <laughs> and so for me, and I've got this sort of uh, humble slash self-deprecating thing going on a little bit sometimes. For me to think that I'm going to be able to write music at that level that just stands by itself is pretty ambitious. So I felt like, why don't I try to do something where I can give a couple words about it and help make a connection for the audience before it happens. And I'm not just thinking about like the hippest audiences in, in, in Brooklyn and stuff like that. I'm thinking about like my grandma, you know, who would come to the concerts just as often as anybody that really knew a lot about music. And honestly, um, is probably hipper than a lot of the people she, who live she is really, live She Brooklyn. is really yeah. quite, a, quite a wonderful woman and I have a lot, a lot of me uh, comes from her. But yeah, so I wanted to make sure that I could say something about it. And I'm, I'm really into like talking to the audience and helping, making sure that everybody knows what's coming before it happens. Um, Thank you, Jesus. My oh, God. I hope so. You know, and like Ugh. the liner notes too for my CD are, I think are just as important, um, to understanding it as anything else. So to me, yeah, every tune is going to be either about a person or about a thought or an experience. Um, and I always tell people to be, be careful because you could be the next tune, you know, <laughs> and, uh, there's a lot of them. I, I've, all of the tunes that are on the album, that's only about a quarter of the material that I've written for this band because it's been a band for a long time. And a lot of them are about stuff like, you know, this lady that I had I have left my notebook on top of the car and was driving and this lady was honking me at, at the light, you know, to tell me that my notebook was there. And so I wrote a tune because I was like, man. This good tune was in that notebook. If it wasn't for that lady, it would have never been a tune. I would have certainly forgotten what I had. So um, I try to just convey little tidbits like that. And it's I've found that it helps people to have a connection to it that they wouldn't ordinarily have had um, just listening. And I think if you just listen to the music without any context, it's okay. And the same is true for that song cycle. You could sit there and just enjoy it as a performance. But I think that that added element really helps to 
form a stronger connection, which to me, you know, isn't that what we're trying to do as musicians is make a connection with the people that we're uh, playing for, right? So that's how that sort of all started. Do you think there's any more need to do that, given that you play music without words? Yeah, because people, if there's words in it, then that's sort of doing that job while the song is happening rather than beforehand. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, a lot of songs lyrically don't say what they're really trying to tell you. So I don't know. I mean, my first reaction was, yeah, so I guess I better go with, yeah. But um, <laughs> I think at the same time, there's a lot of music out there that's... Uh, not as obvious or not as direct, uh, both lyric containing music and lyric free music. So I don't know. I mean, I don't write music with words, so I think that would be a better question for someone who does. But um, to me, I think if I don't explain it a little bit, uh, it's not going to have the same effect. Mm. Can you tell me the story of another song on the album? Any one of your um, choosing? Sure. Uh, Nathaniel Hill is one of my favorite tunes on the album. And Nathaniel Hill is about a guy named Nathaniel Hill, clearly. Um, when I was in high school, and I grew up just outside of Buffalo in Orchard Park, New York. And when I was a kid, my best friend's dad was the lacrosse and football coach at the high school, which was a huge deal in Orchard Park. They were both always really good teams. And uh, I'm, I'm a big sports guy. I love all kinds of sports. So to me, that was really cool, like going to be able to stand on the sidelines and stuff like that as a kid. Um, I remember some of those memories very fondly. So <clears throat> fast forward to high school, and I had been a baseball player all through high school until just about my junior or senior year, I stopped. I was really focusing on music. And I still always admired those guys. You know, I used to drive to baseball practice and just sit there and watch, you know, like those are my old teammates, you know, sort of lamely. I would just sit there in the parking lot. But um, it was fine. You know, I made the right choice. I certainly had a much better chance of being a musician than as a pro athlete. Um, and so I remember reading the papers every Sunday and I would read the lacrosse scores in the summer and a lot of my buddies were on the team. But the neighboring school, Hamburg, had this guy, Nathaniel Hill, that was like tearing it up, you know, scored 10 goals a game. And, and I just remember reading this and being like, wow, that guy, 
he's really good. I have an admiration for anybody that's really good at what they're doing, right? So uh, I forgot about it, and I moved to Rochester and went to school. And in between my undergrad and my master's, I got this apartment in Cornhill neighborhood. You probably remember Cornhill neighborhood, sure. right? And so uh, the guy that was our landlord was on the lacrosse team, the local Rochester Nighthawks indoor lacrosse team, which I was a fan of. So this was really cool to me. This was like, uh, you know, meeting a not an idol, but this guy I thought was way cooler than me. So um, Pat was the landlord, and he said, you know, there's going to be a new tenant upstairs, and the new tenant was Nathaniel Hill. <laughs> and after I figured it out, I was like, oh, man, like, you're the guy from high school. And he was totally the opposite. He was, you know, barely remembered that, you know, but he was playing on the lacrosse team in Rochester. And so it was, for me, like, really exciting to have a friend. This guy became my friend who is a professional athlete, even on a very, like, low scale. I was so excited, and I would ask him, like, a million questions, and I'm sure it was so annoying. Um, but Nate was really interesting because he, as an athlete, was – probably least worried about playing lacrosse of anything in his life. And I had never really experienced that. At Eastman, everybody that was worried about playing music really only thought about music, you know, um, for the better or worse, that was the attitude. And he was really interested in all kinds of other things. He was one of those guys where you would walk past a puddle and he would like stop to ex explore the puddle and check it out. And um, he was thinking about things differently. And he went through and played lacrosse a little bit and then he gave, gave that up and moved to California where they were going to do a new sports complex at Cal Berkeley. They were going to tear down all these really old trees. And so he lived in a tree for two weeks, and uh, they were going to cut it down, and he, they couldn't because he was up there. And I remember thinking to myself, like, if anybody would support a new sports complex at this school, it would be an athlete. Yet he took the other perspective. And he was always trying to do stuff that thought about the environment and tried to help people. And he was one one person who would always give uh, somebody begging for money. He would always give them money or help them with, with food or something. And he didn't have a lot to begin with. So I remember looking at that from, from a further back perspective and saying, like, he's one of the people that's going to do something good in the world, even if it's a small thing. music only all the time attitude sometimes you skip over 
stuff like that. You don't think about the fact that people need help or that you could do something. And I was thinking to myself, like, here I am. I'm going to change the world through music. Um, but he's actually doing stuff. You know, like music is great, and people that listen to music for you know therapeutic reasons and and it you know can transcend situations, and that's all good. But he was actually doing like direct good to other people, and、uh, that was totally tune worthy. You know, absolutely. And I'm still in touch with him, and he's he's a big fan of the record, and you know I think he's a little honored that he's on a tune. So it's cool. You know, we helped each other out in that way. First of all, it's a fantastic story, and I guess. The part that seems like magic,、uh, maybe to me and to others, is how does that story and everything that you just told us then actually become a defined piece of music? What what of that story is in the music? To whatever degree you can explain that to us. Yeah, the、um, the direct translation is that when I think of Nate, I think of somebody who's very earth connected, somebody who's very earthbound, and.、Uh, In a literal sense, you know, he used to sleep outside under the trees in our yard, which I would never have done、uh, for safety reasons and other reasons. <laughs> But he had no problem with that, you know, and he、uh, he was really connected in that way. So to me, and I said to myself, like, what does that sound like in music to me? And to me, that sounded like、um, a pentatonic scale, sort of an idea,、uh, because it's very simple. It's、uh, to me like the very ground level of harmony. Because it has a lot of different ways you can fit it over other stuff, and so I sat down at my at my keyboard and I kind of pecked out this little idea and had the idea, and then I said to myself, "But you know, he's a little bit different. He's a little bit odd. So I wanted something that maybe wasn't so even. You know, like a, if it were in four four, it would be very even. So it's it starts out in eleven eight, which is a really kind of Very normal feeling, but with a little bit of a hump in the middle, and I thought that that suited Nate's personality very well.、Um, and then I picked out there's a start. The tune starts with a little tone row cluster sort of thing,、um, and the notes go very far apart, very close together, very far apart, very close together. And using that little bit of material, I kind of spun it a lot of different ways and came up with the rest of the song,、um, and. That was something that Hollenbeck encouraged me to do. He said, "Like, I sent him visit. You know, I sent him that stuff, and he said these are nice for songs, but he said these aren't really compositions yet because they were all short." He said, "Try to take a little material and turn it into a long thing, which is what he does so masterfully, especially his large ensemble stuff. You know, it's like one little idea, and then all of a sudden it's twenty minutes later, and you're still going." <laughs>、um, so that was, you know, I tried to do that, and that's how we kind of got. The rest of the tune for Nathaniel Hill, but it, that's that tune's all based on that very first couple thirty、uh, seconds or so, and it, I think that it relates to Nate. So that's kind of how I'm doing it, you know. Like I'm finding a little idea that I think about the situation or whatever I'm going to write the tune about, and、uh, that always comes first. Like the topic always comes first to me before any notes, and then I'll say like, okay, how does that connect to me? What does that musically sound like to me? Um, and and that's the thing is that not everybody would agree with that. Not everybody would say that's you know if I said what sounds most earth-like to you, everybody would come up with something different. So it's got to be through my own filter, and I guess that's what I have to contribute as a vessel to the to the music is like it goes through my own personal emotional filters, and then I come out with whatever I come out with. You know, I'm I'm interested in that the thing that that John Hollenbeck said,、uh, and he's not. He's not here to say it himself, so there's only some degree we can, yeah, we can parse been, it. I could be making it up. But、too. no, no, that's fine. <laughs>、um, but I, 
I'm interested because I'm such a huge fan of pop music, and there are a lot of very short pieces of pop music that I think are that I think of as compositions. I mean, yeah, you know, kind of that have just all of the perfect elements and don't need to be any longer than sure. three minutes. So I want when you when you think of that phrase, whether that's exactly how John said it or not, is immaterial. That's what the thing that you just said. Yeah. When you think of that phrase, do you is there some differentiation in your mind that's kind of based on on length or complexity or? Um. Well, I know I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I think in the classical realm, you know, Webern can write a piece that only lasts 14 seconds, but it's still a great piece. Um, and that's not, I wouldn't consider that a song. I would consider that a composition. Um, and I think he didn't mean it in, in any kind of derogatory sense because, sure. because what he said was, um, he said somebody like Kenny Wheeler writes really great songs. Somebody like Bob Brookmeyer writes really great compositions. And I think what he was after was the amount of development. Um, and he, and he continued to say, like, in the songs that I wrote for the song cycle, and I'm calling it a song cycle, right? So I guess that's step one. He said, it's some material. That's cool. And then you improvise a little bit and then you play the melody again, you know, very much like, uh, you know, the American songbook sure. tunes, melody, then you do some soloing and then you play it out. And that's how jazz has worked for a long time. And I think what he was after, what he was trying to get me to do was just take that material and see what more I could get out of it. You know, um, for, you know, like if you took an orange and you squeezed it once into a glass, there's more you can get out of it. And that's what he was trying to tell me, I think. Um, and he obviously is a huge fan of Kenny Wheeler and I am too. I don't think he was saying anything bad about songs in that sense, but he was trying to get me to do more, I think, with what I had come up with. And I like that idea. I guess I hadn't thought of it until he said that. And when I did try to start doing that, I was happier with what I came up with. So, um, Thanks to John for that. Do you find that, I mean, are there, are there kind of two different methodologies to the way that you write one, you know, one that can encapsulate the song idea and one the composition idea? Do you ever, uh, do you ever try to, to not flesh it out, to not, to um, not see where else it can go? Yeah. Especially lately, I've been trying to go back to stuff that could fit on one page for a, for a player. But, um, in terms of the process, I think that a composition to me, starts with a bunch of ingredients that might not all connect and I'm trying to find a way to put them together into something that works like cooking right but in a song I think I'm thinking about the bigger you know how does this melody flow okay now I need some harmony for it okay I've got a song um and I think that they come out different ways I think that's that's why the tunes on the record sound very like you said sweet like sometimes because they're just a bunch of different ingredients that fit together to make a, a satisfying product. But in a tune, that's, and, and that's what I would call a tune or song. You know, I don't call my song, my compositions. I guess I call them songs. I don't know. Uh, the term doesn't matter as much as the outcome though. And in a shorter sort of a song type thing, song cycle pieces, um, those are just something that they happen quicker. They don't have to have as much careful, uh, investigation in them. Many people's do, I mean, that's why, that's why I didn't pass Bill Dobbins' tune writing course the first time, <laughs> because they didn't have a lot of careful investigation. But, um, I think if I were to sit down, I would definitely look at it differently. And I could just sit down and play a tune on the piano, and that could be, oh, that could be a song. But, uh, one of my longer kind of long form pieces, um, would come with some ingredients involved first. And here's a little bit of something that I want to include. And I think I can work together and pair that with this. And okay, now we're getting somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, listening to you talk and, and listening to the record there, 
I'm really struck by a sense of kind of joy and openness in, in who you are and in the music. And it seems like being open to a lot of different ideas and possibilities is maybe at the root of, of yeah, what you're doing as a musician. Absolutely. I think that that's, uh, I try to live my life that way. I remember I, I used to be like a very bad guy to be around. Um, I wasn't very happy most of the time and I used to be, uh, real negative, just real, you know, I remember just kind of like a bully sometimes, you know, when I was in high school, um, I don't like when I look back and see who I was, I don't like that. And, uh, in the last, I don't know how long, five years or something, um, uh, I've just started to figure like, I can be content with where I'm at. I can be happy with what I'm doing. I can have a mohawk if I want to. I can, uh, do high quality work and still feel like I can accept almost anything. You know, I like as a player too. Um, if I'm not having fun, I'm something's going wrong and I want to get out of that situation. Um, and if I'm not, uh, sometimes having fun is like thinking really hard about what's going on and really concentrating. Um, but the most fun comes at the point where I don't have to look at the page anymore and I can just play, um, openly, but in, in life, in every, you know, facet of it without getting too, uh, you know, hippie here. I just think that there's a lot of good and we should look at the good and we should worry about that. And, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's depressing, you know, like, uh, the hotel that I stayed at last night. <laughs> it's very rough, but you know, the good, the good part of it was there was a place that we could stay when I got to town and it worked out and, uh, you know, no one was hurt and nothing was stolen and everything was good. So, I just feel like I'm happier that way. I feel like I, I uh, get into way less arguments and disagreements, and I get myself into a lot less trouble. And uh, so far, it hasn't turned out bad. And if that's true, then I think I'm doing okay. As you look back over the last five years, do you see something in your music that tracks this evolution in who you are as a person? Not really, because I think in what I was presenting in, in tunes and in, in, in the stuff I was performing, I always have had a sense of humor. It just hasn't always been directed in appropriate ways. 
Um, so some of the tunes have kind of, uh, you know, sort of dark, scathing, uh, well, not dark, but like, there was one that, that is called Optimism now. It's not on the record, but it's called Optimism. But the previous title was, uh, Matthew McConaughey, Get in My Pants Right Now. <laughs> because I got so sick of seeing, you know, magazine cover after magazine cover with this guy who appears to be just, you know, completely void of any brain. And, that is what we were focusing on, you know, as a society. And I got mad about that. So that tune was like, obviously angry in the, in the title. And it wasn't an angry sounding piece of music. And so somebody one time said that they were like, you know, the title is hilarious, granted, but it doesn't match, you know, and it does. And the story is funny. And when you tell the story at a gig, everyone laughs, but then the piece that comes after it doesn't make sense with that. So optimism is more i guess that's the most direct connection to the sure. sort of change in in sense of being um, but i'm way happier and i i wish that everybody could feel that way because i feel good about everything will you talk about the people who are on this record with you absolutely um the trumpet player is dave chisholm and he lives downstairs from me he's my neighbor and he uh originally was born in alaska and then grew up in utah and he, I think, is about as good musician as you can find anywhere. He plays the trumpet with ease and with grace, and he's got extremely good harmonic sense, but his rhythmic sense for uh, is one of the best I've ever heard from a horn player. Um, he really pushes me in that sense. And we've got the similar outlook sometimes. You know, he's just happy to be, and things are great, and... He's a great writer in his own sense, and I'm actually on his record that he just put out called Calligraphy, which if you haven't heard that, you should check that out because he's got a whole different thing going on compositionally. He's writing like stuff that sounds like movie soundscapes, you know, really beautiful. Um, and so Dave's the trumpet player, and he's one of the lead voices in the group. And the other lead voice is the uh, saxophone player, Wills McKenna, and Wills is a senior at Eastman right now and from Chicago and Wills uh, has come a long way since I met him and he was 18 years old. Wills used to have to ask us questions about um, like bedroom things that he didn't know about. Like if I hug my girlfriend a lot, can anything bad happen? These are serious questions um, that came up. He once put, he once came over to my house and put his sweatshirt down on top of a lit candle, which, <laughs> quickly burnt right through his sweatshirt. Wills has grown a lot. He's, he's become a man and I'm very proud of him. Uh, and he's really into, uh, he's a lot out of the Mark Turner, Bill McHenry kind of vibe. So when I think about those two guys in the band, Dave's like looks and acts a lot of times like a scientist. And Dave's like the guy that's going to play real strong rhythms and really exactly write notes all the time and really be precise and wills is kind of painting with a bigger brush and he's kind of slopping it around a little bit which i really like that contrast in the horn line really makes a, a nice uh, balance so wills is soloing over stuff that's more like one chord vamps you know or uh, stuff that's more like a soundscape rather than just precise changes and stuff and that's how i try to divide up the responsibilities uh, because the first version of the band had trombone and tenor sax instead of trumpet and tenor sax. But the two guys, uh, Matt Stuver and Pete Finelli, they did that too. 
Pete was the, the bigger brush and Stuver was the more precise guy. So that sort of thing held. Um, Chris Ziemba plays keyboards and piano and he's here at Juilliard now. And Chris is what I kind of think of as like the catalyst in the band. I don't have to ever write very much for him. Um, most of the parts are just like the other guy's parts. And then I say like, come up with something that's going to fit in here. And he does it every time perfectly. Um, and everybody that plays with him realizes, I think, that he's a really incredible talent and can just fit himself into any scenario. So he works well in that in the band too. And I like I asked him to use the uh, Line Six loop station on this record. I said, I think you can get some cool sounds out of this. And he said, Well, I've never done that. I don't know. I I don't think so. I said, Well, take it for a day and figure it out. And the product is is there on the record. I was like blown away by what he did with it. Um, he's that kind of guy, you know, he just makes it happen and figures out how to make it work. And, uh, he's, you know, if, he, if people haven't heard of him here, here in New York, he's going to do some, uh, sweet things real soon, I think. Is there a, um, a song you can point to with an example of the loop station that you're just talking about? It's on, uh, Kluge, I think a lot. Um, I think that's maybe the best example okay. of it, uh, where we have a drums and, and keyboard duo. Uh, that's, I think that's the right tune. I'm yeah, pretty sure. And uh, yeah, that's a good one to check out for Great. Chris. But he sounds good on everything, so anything is good. And then on bass, Ben Thomas, who's been my friend for a really long time, um, and he's a great bass player. He's probably like of the four in the band that aren't me, probably the most outside of the box thinker. Um, he's attended Sim a lot of times here, and he's really into the free improvisation scene. Sim is the school for improvised music, right? right. Yeah. And uh, so Ben is able to take whatever I give him and play it and then add a lot on top of it, which is really nice. Um, he's a great soloist and he's, uh, he's a great guy to be around, which is good for a drummer to have that bass player connection. I mean, other than Dave being my neighbor and, uh, I love all the guys in my band, but Ben and I are, are close buddies. So that really helps. We've gone on a lot of like car trips together and stuff and just being able to share those ideas. Um, we always know where each other is going to be in the music. I always know that um, if I play a certain thing, he's going to counter with something that I can expect to make sense. Um, and so he's the bass player and, uh, all the guys are great to work with and they're all, I feel extremely lucky to have people like that that'll play my music because if it weren't for them and, uh, the music wouldn't be what it is. And I give them a lot of freedom. You know, I say like, you're here because of what you're going to bring to the table. And anytime there's a sub, it's fine, but it's not 
the same because they're bringing something different to the table, you know. And so if we recorded those same tunes again with different guys, it wouldn't be the same at all mm. because those guys are really bringing contributions and suggestions. And uh, I don't have to tell them a whole lot. You know, they just somehow know what it's supposed to be like and they do it. So I'm really lucky because it makes my job a lot easier. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you want me to ask about? Well, I guess the one thing that we didn't talk a lot about is that I live in Rochester, oh, New sure. York. I'll ask you and, about that. And uh, I don't know whether maybe I didn't want to say that or whatever, but I, I did want to say that because I think there's a lot of stuff going on here in New York that's incredible. And uh, to be a part of it, I think, would be really incredible. But if we go back to what we were talking about before, I love where I live. It's uh, And you live there for a long time, so I think you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying. It's a great place to be. Um, the people are great. There's great musicians all over the place. Like, I think as great as I, a lot of people are here in New York, Dave Chisholm is somebody that I would put him up against anybody in, in a trumpet duel, you know, and I think we should try to arrange one because Dave is ready. Um, and, and I think that's true of all the guys. I think that the one thing that we don't have is maybe the, the amount of places to play, but it's, it's a real goal of mine to try to create some type of network there where there can be, because anytime we do play, people love it, you know, and the people come out and Rochester's got a great music scene where, uh, people aren't compartmentalizing, you know, like we can play, uh, on, on the same bill as like a hard rock thing and everybody's into it. They're just open and they're accepting. And that may be true here too. I don't know. I can't speak for that experience, but in Rochester, there's a lot of really good stuff. And I think that it's hard, uh, sometimes, because um, in Rochester, we've got a lot of great musicians, and we've got a lot of great musicians here. But the gigs, if only other musicians are coming to your gigs, I would imagine that to be frustrating. And for me, that was the experience playing at Eastman. Only other musicians were coming, and it was really hard. Um, now that I'm not in school and not that we're able to play, uh, I'm just like I always joke, I'm a guy around town, you know, one of those guys that you just see. It's really awesome because not just musicians are coming to these gigs. So um, I don't know. I've heard that complaint sometimes from friends of mine that live here that it's hard to, to start to reach the, the bigger public. Or another way of putting it is like how how would people hear the music if they didn't come here? You know, that's an obvious like big pro of being here. But also um, I think it's cool being in Rochester because people – when, when my band plays, it's the only band like that, you know, so people are psyched for it and they want to come check it out. Um, so I would put in a vote for Rochester as a great place <laughs> to go if you're trying to find a place for your band to play on a tour or anything like that. Um, and ultimately, I'm happy and things are great. So I don't know what more you would want other than being happy and having things feel good and, and being appreciated. Those are some goals, I guess. So that's Rochester for you. So come check it out, 585. <laughs> My guest is Aaron Stabell, and in addition to being the mayor of the city of Rochester, New York, he's also a drummer and composer and uh, behind the new album, Bending and Breaking. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thanks it's been a lot, a lot for of fun, doing Jason. It. Thanks so much.
That's music from Bending and Breaking, the new album from drummer Aaron Stabell. My name is Jason Crane. This show is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. You'll find it online at thejazzsession.com, and you can become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.